Please join me as we stand together and read God's Word and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I, I do encourage you to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you. It's always helpful to have God's Word open in front of you as we study it together that you might examine it with your own eyes and hold it with your own hands. And what we want to look at this morning as we continue on in our study of Genesis is the second half of Genesis 18, which is verse 16 through 33. It is a passage that one scholar says with grand understatement is very, very significant. So kids, you might ask the question, what's so significant about this conversation that a man named Abraham has with God. And you'll begin to understand some of its significance, kids, if you see a word that is repeated some eight times in the passage, and maybe you can figure it out as I read the passage for us and then pray for our time and we will begin together. So let us hear now as our God of justice speaks to us through his word. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find Sodom in Sodom, Fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And Yahweh said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Then he spoke again to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose there are thirty found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once, suppose ten are found there. And God answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. 
And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we do bow before you even now as sinful people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, people whose consciences accuse us, the enemy condemns us for the sins we have committed this week, even this day. As we come to a text that reminds us that you're the just judge of all the earth, we pray that you would help us to look upon Christ, that we might live and be delivered from the judgment that our sin deserves. Lord, you know that I'm a dying man preaching to dying people, and we must hear with eternity hanging in the balance. So important is the truth that we look into this morning. We do bring these desires through the mediation of your son, Jesus Christ, that you might do good to us in these moments, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure quite a few of you can resonate with my experience in that the older I get, the few childhood memories I seem to have indelibly etched into my mind. Seems like with each passing year, some just fade off into memory, yet the ones that do remain. Some of them are rather predictable, you know, certain significant events and momentous occurrings in my life, and other ones, of course, are just much more random. You don't know why that in particular has just stuck in the mind and like Velcro been latched to the heart for so long. And one such story that falls into that latter category was a night when I was probably about 14 years old, and my father and older sister were discussing something in the room nearby, and it became quite apparent pretty quickly that my older sister was not too happy with how that discussion went. You know, her views of righteousness and perceptions of justice were evidently troubled. And so she walked out of the room and made it clear to all of us in the household what her perspective was on the outcome of that conversation as she walked upstairs and, you know, went towards her room. But just before closing that door, she said, it's just not fair. And I wonder when the last time was you asked such a question about God's fairness, wondering aloud about whether or not God is fair. Because household happiness often depends on the children's understanding of fairness, doesn't it? There's truth in our spiritual life that contentment and joy in God sometimes hangs on notions of fairness. For example, just this week, or certainly in recent weeks, in our own area, in our own community, people have said such things to me. A tornado whips through an area, and people wonder, where was God in protecting my family and home? How is this destruction fair? Our coronavirus breaks out and hobbles a country and kills hundreds and seemingly brings the world's economy to its knees, and people wonder, How's that fair? Or a young mom who's prayed for a child receives the news that she's pregnant. Yet days later, you get a text message and says, the baby's gone. How's that fair? And what you want to see in our text today is it's asking and trying to answer the question of, is God fair? 
Is God's dealings, are God's dealings with his people fair? Or, like we're soon going to see, is he completely like the pagan gods of the ancient Near Eastern world and he just does whatever he wants, no matter whether or not it's warranted? And students, you want to wrestle with this question early on about God's fairness because Satan will tempt you. Unbelievers will try to get you to recognize, no, God is not fair. If there is a God in the world, he surely is not fair. Too much evil exists. Too much tyranny thrives. Too much destruction comes. Surely God is not fair. But it's a text that tells us, yes, God is fair. Because God is is righteous. Kids, did you notice how many times in the course of this passage as I read it, it speaks of righteousness or righteous, which is just simply a way of speaking about being right or living rightly. And what we need to see from this passage is not only is it marrying these two twin realities of God's together, his justice and his righteousness, but it's telling us something altogether simple and significant, that the Lord of righteousness will save his righteous people. The Lord of righteousness will save his righteous people. That's the point that we're meant to see today in a passage that, depending on your awareness of how people tend to teach it, preach it, and study it together, it often becomes a passage that is little more than just a long, extended application on the need for persistent intercessory prayer, which is a really good, faithful application we'll soon make. But the passage, of course, is telling us why we can and why Abraham did persist in prayer before the Lord in such a way as he did because God is righteous and will save his righteous people. Corresponding to that too in this unique situation is God is righteous and will condemn unrighteous people. So we're going to see that in two parts. You'll notice if you glance down again, you kind of got two different scenes, if you will, to the text, verse 16 through 21. Maybe you can stretch it into 22. You see the Lord's invitation to Abraham. There's an invitation the Lord's going to make to Abraham. And then we see in the remainder of the text, Abraham's intercession. And that's what we want to look at today. Is God fair? Now, if that's the dominant question in the back half of Genesis 18, the dominant question the first half of Genesis 18 that we looked at two weeks ago is, is God able? You remember? These angels showed up to Abraham's tents. He brought them in, entertained them with hospitality. We soon found out by verse 10 that one of those men that came into Abraham's tents, it was actually the Lord himself. You'll notice if you look down again in verse 10, the Lord said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, we know Sarah's, you know, listening in to the conversations and the proceedings in the tent, and she laughs aloud. And the Lord says, why does she laugh? And, of course, is anything, he goes on to say, too hard for the Lord? Is God able? Yes, he is. That's the point of the beginning of chapter 18. Now, the question is, is God fair? And as we turn to the Lord's invitation to Abraham, we begin to see why we can say, yes, he is. Look at verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So you have these three visitors that have come into Abraham's tents, and according to the custom of the ancient world, he's escorting his guests out on their journey, and they come to a place because Hebron was about 1,000 feet above sea level. Sodom was actually below sea level. And so they are quite literally looking down on Sodom. 
And kids, when you hear the word Sodom in Scripture, there is this sense of your skin starting to crawl. Because Sodom is synonymous with sin. In some ways, is the sin city in Scripture. Certainly outside of Babylon, it's the sin city in all of the Bible. Abraham goes with him on their way as they look down on Sodom. And what we, what we see in the next few verses is almost as though we get into the mind of God. Because it seems as though the Lord is having this inner dialogue with himself. Or maybe it's with the two other angelic men that are with him. And he's asking himself this question. Notice verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? So students, what is God about to do? If you know just the next few verses and of course into the next chapter. He's going to destroy Sodom. So God is asking himself, or maybe asking the angels that are next to him in Abraham's hearing, shall we hide, shall I hide from Abraham the judgment that Sodom deserves? Or should I bring him in to my counsel? Should I bring him in to my divine plan? And you might know that Genesis chapter 20 verse 7 calls Abraham a prophet. And it's very common in the Old Testament that God uniquely, with his prophets, brings them in to his divine counsel. That they would not only know what God wants them to say to his people, but why God wants him to say what they need to say to God's people. And it seems like in this moment, the Lord is making an invitation to Abraham to, to let him in to this divine counsel to understand why it is going to happen that Sodom is going to be consumed. Because look at how the text continues. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, mighty, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. It's almost as though, I think this is the way we need to interpret verse 18 specifically. It's God is saying, Abraham, of course, I've chosen him. My sovereign grace has fallen upon him. We know from Genesis 12 that he is going to be my covenant servant to bring my covenant blessings to all the nations of the earth. And it's not possible for him to be that kind of a blessing to the nations if he doesn't know the truth of my character, my justice, my righteousness. We must bring him in. I must let him see, as it were, the reason why judgment comes upon sin. And so when we come to verse 19, I would encourage you, especially fathers, but certainly any parent, to underline verse 19 and maybe talk about it later today because there's an entire theology of family in verse 19 if you have eyes to see. But let me just point out a couple of things that we need to see in verse 19. First of all is God's sovereign election. Because you see how verse 19 begins. Why, as it were, is God going to invite Abraham in? For I have chosen him. Uh, ESV renders it chosen. The actual Hebrew word is for I have known him. And you know, I hope, that know this word, yada, in the Old Testament is more than factual information. It's personal, intimate knowledge that people have with one another, that God has with someone. When God knows someone, it's not just mere factual realities of your existence. That's why God can say, guess what? I know every hair on your head, how many there are, how many there were, what the pains of your heart are, the joys of your soul are, 
I know him, God says. But you'll notice as the verse continues, God tells us there are two specific purposes in his sovereign election of Abraham. The first of which is election calls for instruction. For I've chosen him, notice how verse 18, I'm sorry, 19 continues, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Uh, We know from the later prophets that God has chosen his people because he desires godly offspring. Godly offspring come from godly parents. Godly offspring come through the godly instruction of godly parents in the ways, clearly here, of godliness. That they would keep the way of the Lord in righteousness and justice. So what he's saying is, I need to bring Abraham into my counsel, into my plan, so that he might be able to instruct his entire household about the truth of my righteousness and justice. So imagine how this might work out. Speculate for just a second, spiritually speaking, about what this might have meant in Abraham's life. Think years later, after chapter 19 has come and gone, and Abraham is still alive, and he's talking with his children, or maybe his grandchildren, or his servants and his servant children about the ways of God. And he's saying, you must obey the Lord fully, carefully. Obey in every way. And the little child says, why, Father Abraham? Is it really that important? And he says, yes, it is. Well, how do you know? We don't have a Bible. This completed canon of Scripture. How do you know that it's that important? Well, I stood over Sodom and saw and smelled the smoke of God's judgment against sin. It is that important, little child, little children, that you obey the Lord. So parents, I do hope that you have this kind of eternal significance and weight in your teaching of your children. Don't be scared to talk about the realities of God's justice and righteousness towards sin. The realities of death and eternity. They must know it now. For you know as well as I do, they're not promised another decade as much as you or I are promised another ten hours. The purpose of election is to call for instruction, and instruction leads to the way of reception. Notice this other purpose at the end of verse 19. Teach them to keep the way of the Lord so that, verse 19 says, the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There's a long meditation you could do just on that part of verse 19, but the simple truth of it is is the, the ordinary pathway to receiving God's promises is obedience and consecration, holiness unto the Lord. Covenant obedience is required to receive covenant blessings. This is how God relates to Abraham in his sovereign grace, what he calls for from Abraham in his sovereign grace, what he will bring to Abraham in his sovereign grace. Maybe three years ago, I came across a book that was authored by a man named Alan Schwartz. The New York Times said it was a book that everyone should read. The title of the book was ADHD Nation. Children, Doctors, Big Pharma, and the Making of an American Addiction. And I went on to describe how we've gotten to the point where we are in our country where one in seven children are diagnosed with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I'm not trying to draw any line in the psychological sand by mentioning this book other than to say if you were in the ancient Near Eastern culture of Abraham, 
ADHD nation was the collection of pagan deities and gods. They were the ones that were totally unpredictable. They were the ones that were totally unable to keep their attention on anything. Whatever they did, the people in the ancient Near Eastern world said they just did it because they wanted to. For whatever reason they had in their minds, they offered their judgments whenever, however, why ever, in whatever manner they wanted. They were totally unpredictable. So when we get to verse 20 and 21, what we're trying to now understand in the help of God's Spirit is that God is not like that. He is not unpredictable in His judgments. He doesn't go around around with capricious desire to consume people. Because notice verse 20 through 21, the Lord said, Behold, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. Now, children, when you come to a verse like this, and it says, God's going to go down to Sodom to find out what's going on there. Then you ask yourself, or maybe someone asks, do you think God didn't know what was going on down there? And you just shake your head and say, no, of course, he knew what was going on down there. So what's the point of him going down there? Well, to help us realize that God doesn't judge people capriciously, unpredictably, however, whenever he wants, in whatever manner he wants. He ensures that the justice is right. It is deserved. It corresponds to what this text calls very grave sin. So what do you know about Sodom's sin? We do know, of course, from next week that Sodom becomes synonymous, doesn't it, with grave sexual immorality. But uh, later on in the Bible, specifically the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, God speaks about Sodom's sin in terms of its fullness. Everything that was going on at the time when he destroyed them. And listen to Ezekiel 16, verse 49 through 50. This was the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. And if you have eyes to see, that sounds a lot like our country today. In other words, the judgment that he plans for Sodom is thoroughly deserved. An outcry has come up to God, is what the text says. This is outcry in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. It speaks of this legal language. It's this cry of the oppressed, crying out for judgment. It's as though the sin of Sodom has reached up into heaven. God is going to come down and now see exactly how great it is in order to prove That yes, they must be consumed with sulfur and fire. And do you remember the last time in Genesis, God came down to see something? That was in chapter 11. He said, let us go down and see that tiny tower they've built in Babel. To scatter them in judgment. When God comes down, we said so many weeks ago in scripture, when God comes down, It tends to be a most terrifying reality. And this is what Abraham is invited in to see, to hear, to know. And so it does lead, doesn't it, to Abraham's intercession. Notice verse 22. The men turned from there and went down towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. 
What you need to picture here, because it's the language that's really being used, is this kind of scene of a courtroom. Just as someone stands before the judge, so is Abraham now standing before the judge of all the earth, and we know he's getting ready to plead a case. He's getting ready to ask the judge for, for mercy upon a particular people. He stands before the Lord, and you'll notice as verse 23 continues, then Abraham drew near. He drew near in, in prayer, of course. When was the last time you drew near to God? Abraham is often referred to in Scripture as the friend of God. In friendship with God means this insatiable longing for fellowship with God through prayer. And what's he going to speak to the Lord about? Notice the question of verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you sweep the godly away with the ungodly in Sodom? That's the question. That's the point of the prayer, the pleas that continue persistently in the next few verses. When I was a, a youth pastor, we used to take this evangelistic mission trip with the high schoolers over spring break down to a particular area in Mexico. We would go down there for the week and do essentially door-to-door -door evangelism with mostly the junior and seniors that we had in the youth ministry at the time. And as you tend to do on trips like this, there was a portion of a day that was dedicated to trying to get the kids to just kind of enjoy what was the Mexican culture of where we were. And one of the things we tended to do on those days was take them to this market, this local market that was nearby because we wanted them to understand what genuine Mexican food was like there from the street vendors, but also allow them to buy a toy or buy a trinket that they could take home. And one of my adult leaders at the time was incredibly giddy for this day uh, to go into the market for a particular reason. He viewed himself as a master haggler. This was like the summoning of all of his giftedness going into the market, walking around student with student. What would you like? Okay, that. Well, now let's go and see if we can bargain down the price. Or what would you like? Let's go over there and see if we can haggle with the vendor and get a better price for you that's, that's fair because they're going to try to rob you is what he always thought. Well, if you've understand or you've understand or have ever done that kind of haggling, that bartering, that bartering in something of a marketplace, you know exactly what's getting ready to ensue with Abraham and God. He's going to bargain with God. But it's not exactly how we tend to do it today. Of course, if you were to go into a marketplace, most people would start low expecting to come up in their number, right? You kind of bid low in order to get a little bit up, but a number you're content with. Uh, Abraham, in his boldness, he starts whittling it down, doesn't he? Five, ten, 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 ten. Because notice verse 24 through 26. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you not... Or sorry, will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I wonder if you've had boldness to speak to the Lord like that. Maybe you know that Scripture normally doesn't commend people for speaking so boldly to God. You can think of Romans chapter 9 where Paul talks about this 
sustained argument for sovereign grace and election, and he expects the arguments coming against it in this hypothetical debate that ensues in his writing. And eventually he says, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? You don't get to ask questions like that, is the tone of the text. Or consider someone else in the ancient Near Eastern culture that we value so much in Scripture, this man named Job. Who we know from Job chapter 1 and 2, God held in unique high esteem, uniquely high esteem. Job, of course, loses everything at the hands of Satan, gets to a point where he is genuinely lamenting his experience to God. This heartfelt complaint to the Lord, why will you not answer me? God shows up. Job 38, in the whirlwind. And do you remember what God says to his chosen servant when he arrives? Who is this that darkens my counsel? Dress for action like a man, and I will tell it to you. And here's Abraham. He doesn't get any of it, does he? That kind of strong response. God's invited him in to pray in this way. He welcomes it. He welcomes Abraham's desire to see the righteous people saved in Sodom. Surely because what Abraham understands is the point of the prayer, God's divine character. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Won't you be righteous towards the righteous in Sodom? And I hope you understand how this is so useful for your own prayer life. Not just to plead God's promises, but persist in prayer with God's character. Understand how it could simply work out in your life this week. You are merciful because He is. Will you not comfort me in my suffering? You are powerful. Will you not deliver me from this temptation? You are faithful. Won't you bring the promises to pass in my family? Abraham saying, you are just. Won't you be just toward the righteous in Sodom? God, of course, says, yes, I will not wipe it away for the sake of 50 righteous people. Well, if you know how the story continues, Abraham continues to whittle it down, doesn't he? He goes from 50 to 45, 45 to 40, 40 to 30, 30 to 20, and then he gets to the end. Notice verse 32 and following. Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. The Hebrew there is, let not the Lord be hot. And I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Now, we've read a little bit about Sodom's sin. Now, kids, are there any righteous people living in Sodom? There is. Lot. Abraham's nephew. And even someone told me this week, but Lot wasn't righteous. Oh, he is. Second Peter, in a mysterious way to some of us, chapter 2 says, Righteous Lot escaped judgment in Sodom. So what's Abraham genuinely praying for in this moment? The delivery of his righteous family from this judgment that he apparently knows Sodom deserves. I think that's why he's whittling down the number. He starts with 50, and then it's as though he's thinking to himself, I'm not so sure there are 50 righteous people in Sodom. 40. Yeah, I don't know about that either. 30. 
until he gets to ten, which was the smallest unit in the Hebrew culture that you could collectively gather a people around as an identity. Verse 33, the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. What does it tell us? God is righteous and will save his righteous people. God is righteous and he will judge the unrighteous in his justice. I think it was two weeks ago, I was teaching this class down at the seminary and one of the faculty members popped their head in at the back of the room for a little bit and as a rookie professor of sorts, I start to get nervous. This is an unexpected evaluation of my teaching methods. And I thought to myself on the way home, after the surprise investigation of sorts, that so much of our life has these little investigations that pop up all over the place. Kids, did you go clean your room? Yeah, sure. Well, let me go check and see. And then the kid's racing up before you <laughs> because they know that room actually isn't clean. Or maybe students put it more significantly and acutely. Parent says, hand me your phone. Let me see what you've been texting about. Or let me see the browsing history on your computer. Teachers inspect your work. Coaches inspect your play. Employers inspect your work. So much of our life is almost punctuated by these many investigations. And what I want to do as we begin to close is think about the investigation that awaits God's people. Not just God's people, though. All of humanity, as signaled in this verse. Because there is a day coming, isn't it, when God is going to investigate every man and woman boy and girl and I wonder what he will find when he arrives in your life so let's see these truths if we can drive this theme of God's righteousness home to our heart from the passage to see it rightly number one tremble because God is righteous I do hope you know what that means tremble because God is righteous. There is a day coming when the Son of Man will come forth from the clouds, bursting forth from heaven, and every person will see it, and every heart will be exposed, and who will be able to stand before the righteous king on that day? For what will he find? God sends these two angels down to Sodom. Let me see what we're going to find down there. If God sent an angel down to your heart this evening, what will he find there? And I do hope you have the humility and honesty to recognize what he would find is sin that deserves his judgment. Perhaps even a din of iniquity that only you know its fullness. So what does that call for but faith and repentance, dust and ashes, if you will, towards God's righteousness? Look back to a part of the text we skipped over in verse 27. You know, I read this commentator earlier this week that was trying to kind of get himself in the emotional tone of the text. And he was just astounded by the boldness of Abraham and called it a beatdown with God. Such was Abraham's persistence and confidence. I thought, well, you have seen way too much strength in Abraham, right? Just look at verse 27. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I, who am but dust and ashes. Tremble before the righteous God. Tremble because God is righteous. The dust of faith, the ashes of repentance are all God requires of you. But of course, if you understand the truth of Scripture, without that dust and those ashes, 
God promises that you will become dust and ashes at the day of judgment before him because of your sin. You must feel the bad news of God's righteousness in order to love the good news of God's righteous son. So tremble because God is righteous. Trust in God's righteous son. That's the simple point. Trust in God's righteous son. Because we know Abraham's prayer was successful. He wasn't just a prophet in this passage. He's a priest in this passage, interceding for his people. Flip the page over to chapter 19, verse 29. He's praying for the righteous to be delivered. God says, I won't consume Sodom if I find 10 people. He doesn't find 10 people, so he consumes Sodom. But notice verse 29, Lord willing, we will see this next week. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Lot. It doesn't say that, does it? God remembered Abraham in his prayers and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's intercession was what? Successful in saving. Tremble because God is righteous and the righteous king is coming. You need not tremble long because you can trust in God's righteous son who ever lives to make intercession for his people because at that day when God comes down to see the earth, who will speak for you? Has anyone spoken for you? The Bible tells us there is one who speaks for his people. The book of Hebrews, the blood of Jesus Christ, speaks a better word. Isaiah chapter 53, that he bore the sin of transgressors and makes intercession for the sinners. That he presents his people before the Father because he lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. He rose again, ascended to the Father's right hand. The Bible tells us what he is doing now for his people is praying for them. Pleading for them. Interceding for them that you might be held fast in God's hands. Is God fair in saving anyone? Yes. Because he looks on the righteousness of his son that you receive through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Who will speak for you when God comes down to see? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and speaks for me. Do you know that righteous king? Who is the God of righteousness? Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would indeed give us more grace. That you would give us true repentance and genuine faith as we look upon Christ who is our savior. We want to know his prayers for us. Help us to trust that he is praying for us. Has sent the spirit to help us in our weakness that we might persevere in righteousness and justice, keeping the way of the Lord. Do that, we pray, that you might be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.